If you meet a person who's an atheist, just lovingly tell them, you're really not. You know there's a God. They do. Why? Because his invisible attributes, his eternal nature, it's all seen through the things he has made. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Pastor Carl has been addressing biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled in his series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Over the next three days, Dr. Brogy will be preaching from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Today's sermon is entitled, A Marriage Made in Heaven. Is your study of biblical prophecy causing you to fall in love with Christ? Revelation chapter 19 verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We are going to study three truths about this wedding and today we begin with point one which is, The bride will be beautiful. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Would you take God's Word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 19? If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very last book in the New Testament. And if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. Typically, I go through an entire book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But right now, we're looking at God's prophetic schedule. And if you're, again, new to Scripture, even a casual reader of the Bible, you cannot miss the fact that God's truth is woven all the way through from Genesis to Revelation that the Messiah is not only going to come once, but he's going to come twice. In the New Testament alone, there's over 300 prophecies concerning his return from heaven. First, as he catches us up in the air, it's called the rapture, and then part of that program is he comes back to the earth. Of all the prophetic portions of Scripture, a little less than half have been fulfilled. So the vast majority of prophetic scripture is yet to be fulfilled. And it's in reference to Christ's return from heaven, his magnificent reign upon the earth, and ultimately as he consummates time and we go into the eternal state. As you read through scripture, you discover there are two pictures of the Messiah. He comes as a suffering servant, but he also comes as a reigning king. And very often, if you are with us in our study of Daniel and Revelation, in a single passage of Scripture, both comings are found. And what many of the Old Testament saints and even the early apostles didn't initially understand is that there's a gap of time between his first coming and his second coming. God knew, of course, that he would come to his own, and his own, meaning the Jewish people, for the most part, would not receive him. Only a remnant of Jewish people responded. And so God delayed the kingdom. That's Matthew chapter 13. The coming kingdom is yet to unfold, but it is going to unfold. So we're between two great mountain peaks of prophecy. Between the peak of his first coming, the peak of his second coming, between that there's a valley, so to speak, known as the church age. And so there's coming a time when God is going to catch up his church. Things are going to change. And God will switch to the Jewish people. The Jewish people will once again lead in terms of disseminating spiritual truth. In fact, the scripture is very clear that in reference to the second coming, Jesus cannot, he cannot come back for the second coming 
until the Jews repent and believe. And Jesus made that very clear, and we've been studying that in the Olivet Discourse. And so the spirit of prophecy is about the Lord Jesus. In fact, the Bible concludes with the final thought where Jesus said, yes, I am coming quickly. And John says, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. And so the Jewish people are going to return to the Messiah, all Israel, to use Paul's expression, all Israel will be saved, and then God will begin to unfold a new program. So this is where we're at. Jesus said, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me. He's speaking to all Jewish people. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the Jewish people are going to believe as a whole, holistically, the one who came in the name of Yahweh, they will acknowledge it. And so <clears throat> if, uh, if you remember, they're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is about ready to ascend up into heaven. And the disciples asked a penetrating question. They said, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, unlike so many Christians today, these Jewish apostles believed that there would be a literal, actual kingdom that Christ would initiate upon the earth. And they are asking an important question because Jesus in this context is speaking about the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, when the kingdom comes upon the earth, there's a powerful movement of the Spirit across the entire planet. And so these men being drenched in the Old Testament scriptures think, well, maybe this is the time to which Jesus responds, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, if Jesus was going to correct a false view, this would have been the time to do it. And so someone criticized me this week, and I'm, I'm used to criticism. It's okay. It doesn't bother me. And they said, you're talking all the time about Israel. I said, you cannot preach on Bible prophecy without making a distinction between Israel and the church. The church is not the new Israel. And while that has become the popular position amongst many Christians, Jesus made it clear, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, I cannot come back until you as a nation say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just as God used Israel to bring the first coming, he's going to use them to bring about the second coming. And so unlike the reform movement that say, well, there is no literal coming kingdom, Jesus just said, look, you're consumed with times and dates, and you don't need to be consumed with that. Again, this would have been the perfect time to correct bad theology, and it would have fixed it for the next few thousand years. No, you guys understand there's no more kingdom. It's not going to happen, but he doesn't say that. He just says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even in the remotest part of the earth. What you need to be consumed with is the commission, the great commission, which is an overflow really of the great commandment. So again, here's the big picture, and this is one of the reasons we are doing this series on Bible prophecy. Here's kind of a schematic of uh, how things will unfold. It's a partial schematic. Uh, the next event, as you can see on this, is the rapture of the church. The word rapture is from the uh, Greek word harpazo, it means to be caught up, and there's a Latin translation of the Bible that was used for a thousand years, and they translate it coming directly into English as rapture. 
So we shouldn't say the rapture is not in the Bible. It's in the Latin Bible, and it was this key uh, Bible that was used by the body of Christ for nearly a thousand years. So the rapture is going to happen, and then there's a space of time between the rapture and this seven-year period. We don't know how long it is. It appears from Scripture it's a short period of time, weeks, days, months, but the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy And we studied this 70-week prophecy of Daniel in this series. And if that's new to you, you should definitely go back and listen to that message because it's one of the most amazing biblical prophecies in all of the Old Testament because it's a mathematical prophecy that gives you the time frame when the first coming will take place. That's why the wise men were so alert. They knew they were in the time frame of what Daniel had written about. But this 70 week, this seven year in Jewish chronology, they not only have a week of days like we have, they have a week of years. And so there's a seven year period. It's called in the Old Testament, the time of Jacob's trouble. In the New Testament, it's called the great tribulation. And Daniel and John and Jesus divide it into two halves. The first half is bad, it's called tribulation. In the middle, there's an event called the Abomination of Desolation, which we studied. We did four sermons on that, where the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple, makes himself out to be God, and then it goes from bad to worse, and the Great Tribulation takes place. At the end of that seven-year period, small space of time, because no one knows the day or the hour, but then Jesus comes back to the earth. So first he comes for his bride, then he comes back with his bride. Now, While this seven-year period is unfolding upon the earth, there are some events that are taking place in heaven. One is called the Bema. We call it sometimes the Bema Seat, but the word Bema literally means judgment seat. It might be better rendered reward seat because the focus is not one of punishment, but rewards. It's the judgment of the just, and there's a whole message on that. God, as a saved person, if you know Jesus today, he's going to evaluate your life in heaven and reward you accordingly. And we'll see that this morning in Revelation 9, 8, of how the bride, the church, has been dressed in the righteous acts of the saint. We know this is in the future for several reasons. One is Jesus speaks of a resurrection of the righteous. Secondly, Revelation 19, 8 describes the reward of the saints of God. Um, In addition, 2 Timothy 4, Paul speaks that in the future, hasn't happened yet, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness that he'll give to me, and not just to me, but to all who love his appearing. One of the five crowns that can be awarded to the believer is expressed through a love for Jesus' return. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this series. I hope in your heart you will long for the return of Christ. And if you don't, there's a spiritual problem in your heart. And in addition, of course, a number of parables that Jesus taught and then some direct teachings is that your responsibility during Christ's rule on the earth will be indexed to your faithfulness now. So some will be over 10 cities, some over five cities, and so forth. After the judgment of the just, the Bema, there's the marriage of the Lamb. And so when you think about the second coming, think about it much like the first coming. There's the first coming program, and there's the second coming program. The first coming program was not a singular event. It involved Jesus leaving heaven as the Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb, took his eternal deity, brought together perfect sinless humanity in one person. 
He lived and was raised in Nazareth at the age of 30. He began his public ministry in Nazareth. He was soon rejected, left Nazareth, went to Capernaum as his headquarters, ministered for three plus years. At the end of those three plus years, he's crucified, buried, raised. He walks on the earth for 40 days after the resurrection, and then he ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives, the very mountain the scripture teaches he's coming back to. And so that's all part of the first coming program. The second coming program also includes a number of events. First, he comes, we meet him in the air. Uh, we're brought into heaven. There's some things transpiring in heaven while there's a program that is unfolding on the earth. And one of the functions of the great tribulation period, again called the time of Jacob's trouble, is to give people who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power a final opportunity to repent and to believe. And it's during this time that Jesus can say, this gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world and then the end shall come. So what we're attempting to do, and we should continue to do it, we shouldn't say, well, it's gonna be fulfilled so I can just sit on my hands. No, we are to be obedient Christians. We're to do everything we can in our power with God's strength and by his provision to reach the gospel, bring the gospel to the world. It is going to happen. And so John sees this massive group of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who through Jewish evangelists, 144,000 of them, every tribe, tongue, and nation participate in giving their lives to Christ. And so the Bema takes place, but there's also a marriage that's made in heaven that happens during this seven-year period. Now, I suppose everyone wants to say, I have a marriage made in heaven. Well, there's going to be a literal marriage that will be made in heaven. It's called in our passage this morning, the marriage of the Lamb. And so first we'll be caught up in the rapture, then we'll see this morning we'll be dressed up as he clothes us in fine linen. And in the process, through the marriage of the lamb and the supper that will be followed, we'll be cheered up. And there will be many blessed days, great days that we have to look forward to. But if you are lost and you don't know Christ as your savior and you die without him, you will not be a part of this great wedding. You will spend your eternity under the eternal wrath of God Almighty. Now, that's not God's desire. God's desire is that you be saved. But when Jesus comes back to the earth, it's one of the most anticipated events in all of human history. All doubts will be ended. All debates will be silenced. It will just be finalized. It will be the final apologetic. Every eye will see him. When we meet him in the air, just the church will see him. But at the second coming to the earth, every eye will see him. Every mouth will be closed. Now, beginning here in Revelation chapter 19, follow along starting in verse 7. John writes, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the li fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. 
But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now the first six verses that I'll just briefly run through to give us some context this morning, they basically are a marriage announcement. When you uh, are going to have a wedding, there's usually an announcement that precedes it. And so these verses represent the marriage announcement. And there's a lot of praise and singing, a chorus that is unfolding. In fact, when Babylon falls, if you remember the broader context, chapters 17 and 18 speak of this place called Babylon. And there are two aspects to Babylon. There's religious Babylon, this coming one world religious system that will ultimately give its sole allegiance not to a multiplicity of religions that is being unfolded today, but to a singular religion, namely that of the Antichrist. And then there's economic Babylon, and the two are brought together because no one will be able to buy or sell anything unless they take the mark of the beast. And so we've studied both aspects of Babylon already in this series. Well, at the end of chapter 18, God crushes it. He destroys that physical capital in which Babylon has its headquarters. And so if you look back at chapter 18 and verse 20, an angel of God shouts, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgments for you against her. These are the people in chapters 17 and 18 who hated the people of God, who persecuted the people of God, who chopped off literally their heads for following Jesus. And what we read in the first six verses here of chapter 19 is their response to that command to rejoice. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, don't miss the context. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added almost for a thousand years after the Bible is complete. So whenever you see this phrase, after these things, and it appears throughout the book of Revelation, it's signaling you that there's a change of subject. And so the great tribulation has come to an end, and now the spotlight is on heaven and on Christ as he comes back. All the seal, all the trumpet, all the bold judgments are over. And so John has heard of the fall of Babylon. He heard something that he said is like a loud voice. It's interesting, this word, these two words, loud voices, phone megale. We inverse them in English, megale phone, and so we get our word megaphone. And so we're told that this great multitude creates this loud voice. Now, we were first introduced to the great multitude in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. Let me read it to you. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. He's describing the work of 144,000 Jewish evangelists where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are saved. And that's God's heart. God's heart is salvation. And one of the purposes of the tribulation is not just to bring the Jewish people to faith, 
but for them to take the gospel and spread it to the world. And so there's 144,000 evangelists that you can't kill. (laughs) They're indestructible. And God gives them the power and the authority and the ability to take the gospel to every language on the planet. And of course, God said through his son, God the son, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And I hope you know that that's why Community Bible Church exists. Number one, we're here to exalt Jesus. We're here to lift up the Savior. We live for the glory of God. Number two, we are here to edify the saints. And so I'm here opening the Scripture because you can't be edified with my thoughts and ideas. Only through Holy Scripture can that build you up. And third, we're here to evangelize the lost. That's why we're here to exalt the Savior, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. And if a church is not engaged in those three things, they need to repent because they're not worth the real estate that they sit on. And so after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's found four times here in Revelation 19. And by the way, it's found nowhere else, that word, in all of the New Testament. Hallelujah. Hallel means to praise. Yah is the word for Yahweh, for God. And so it basically means praise the Lord. And it's one of those words that is the same in every language of the world. And so how many languages do you know? Well, at least you know one word from every language of the world. And it's hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And so that's what they're doing here in stanza one found here in verse one of this song. They're rejoicing because they have come to believe that Jesus, Yeshua, is truly the Messiah. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. And of course, they are saved by the blood of the lamb. Look at stanza two uh, of this great wedding that is going to unfold. It says, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, verse two. Why? Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot, that's Revelation 17 and 18, Babylon, who, ha- who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and, is he, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Now, we don't often think about praising God, saying, praise the Lord for him putting down evil. You know, most of the hymns today are expressive of maybe God's love or God's grace. But there's not enough hymns that maybe praise God for his righteous acts, for his holy wrath that will someday come upon the world. And so you may live in a setting somewhere in the world, and we have foreign countries everywhere that are live streaming us. You may even feel ripped off in America that some courtroom did not do you justice. Well, one of these days, God's justice is going to be fully expressed. And so God will make every wrong correct. And so here are people in heaven singing hallelujah over the moral attributes of God because, here's the reason, because his judgments are righteous and true. So they're praising God, not just for his grace and redeeming them with the blood of the lamb, but for his righteous acts because he has avenged the blood of those who have been persecuted. Put out in the margin next to this verse, if you will, Psalm 19 and verse 9 
Uh, if you know the Scripture, you know there's two kinds of revelation. There's what we call general revelation, that information that God gives to every man on the planet. And then there's what we call specific kind of appointed revelation that not everyone receives, largely because they don't respond to general revelation. And so if you know Psalm 19, it's a Psalm of David, and it opens up with general revelation, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. No man can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because his fingerprints are all over his creation. That's why never in the New Testament, unlike the modern church, no one ever in the New Testament spends one half of one verse defending the existence of God. If you meet a person who's an atheist, just lovingly tell them, you're really not. You know there's a God. They do. Why? Because his invisible attributes, his eternal nature, it's all seen through the things he has made. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And then he moves to specific revelation in verse 7 of that psalm. Let me read it to you. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise to simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then in the next verse, this is the verse that John quotes, verse 9 of Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So no one can ever question or challenge the fact that God will only act justly because God's judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, for he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So here's millions of untold saints in heaven who are singing that great message. God has judged the great harlot. Notice the second quotation. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, when you see that change in typeset, listen to the New American Standard. Different publishers do it different way, and it goes to all caps. That tells you it's an Old Testament quotation. And the second quotation is from the book of Deuteronomy. It's a partial quotation. It's part of the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses is sung on three different occasions in the Old Testament. Most memorably, when they cross the Red Sea, God splits it in two. They walk between a wall of water. Then Pharaoh and his army, who had evilly treated the people of God, they're all drowned in the Red Sea. And so he's quoting that and saying, just like... Pharaoh and his army cruelly treated the people of God. Even so, Babylon, unrighteous Babylon, would treat these, un, these saints in an unworthy way. And so they're praising God for his wrath. Now understand, at this point in the Revelation, if you know the book, no one else is going to be saved. Man has hardened his heart beyond all possibilities. No one else will be saved. Now, again, we don't think so much about praising God for his righteous, just acts, but we should. Look at verse 3. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And so, again, typically we praise God for his love, his grace, his mercy, his glory. But here they are praising God for his unrelenting, terrifying judgment that is about to come for divine justice. And that's a good thing. God's justice is true. It is righteous. And by the way, it is entirely predictable. It's not whimsical. 
doesn't fly off the handle like we might. It's totally predictable. It's always in response to sin. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 020. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.